we take as our text this morning, the Word of God, as we find it in the first part of verse 11 of John 19. In the previous verse, Pilate had asked Jesus, Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And this is our text then for this morning. Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And after the proclamation of God's word, let us respond with singing hymn 42, stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, already in eternity, God knew that man would give in to the temptation of the evil one. God knew that man would rebel against him. And yet, already in eternity, out of his love for mankind, God established a plan of redemption, where God would redeem a part of mankind and thereby receive glory and honor for the sake of his love and his grace. And that plan of redemption would not be fulfilled in a moment of time, but it would be worked out over thousands and thousands of years of world history. And that plan of redemption would not go unopposed. Just as Satan was allowed to oppose God's plan of creation and tempt man in paradise, So Satan and his demons would be allowed to oppose the fulfillment of this glorious plan of redemption. And so when we look back over the thousands and thousands of years of salvation history recorded in the Old Testament, we see how the forces of evil tried to prevent Christ from coming into this world. And at times it almost looked as if he would succeed. You think of the time of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel when when the church was so fiercely persecuted that, to all appearances, the church seemed to have been wiped out. The prophet Elijah lamented that he alone was left of all God's people, and they sought to kill him as well. And yet, through all the ages, God caused his plan of redemption to be fulfilled. And in due time, the Son of God came in the flesh, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. And of course, once Christ Jesus came into this world, in the flesh, then all the forces of evil focused their power on Christ in order to prevent him from fulfilling that plan of redemption. And at the time of our text, it seems as though the the forces of evil have reached the zenith of their power. It's at a time when, in our text, Jesus looks almost powerless, almost defeated. The writing is on the wall, so to speak. The Lord Jesus Christ is about to be crucified. And to the disciples who followed Jesus, it would surely seem as though the forces of evil were victorious. It would seem as though God's plan of redemption had failed. But nothing could be further from the truth. Christ was not powerless. And he was not defeated. 
And never was God's plan of redemption closer to being fulfilled than at the time of our text. And so this morning we listen to the word of God with this theme. Christ gives power to evil forces to crucify him so that God's plan of redemption may be fulfilled. And we will see two things. First, divine sovereignty in Christ's crucifixion. And then secondly, human culpability. That means human guilt in Christ's crucifixion. Again, Christ gives power to evil forces to crucify him so that God's plan of redemption may be fulfilled. And we will see, first of all, the divine sovereignty in Christ's crucifixion and then human culpability. Our text, beloved, is about a power struggle, not a new struggle, mind you, an ancient one. It's a struggle that began immediately after the fall into sin. And it's not a struggle between flesh and blood, though it may appear to be so. It may appear to be a a struggle between Christ on the one hand and Caiaphas and the leading Jews and Pilate on the other hand. But in reality, it's a power struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which we read about already in Genesis 3, where God said to the serpent, the devil, I will put enmity, I will put hatred and wrath between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so this struggle then, this enmity is between Satan and the Christ, between the children of the devil and the children of God. And a critical moment in this struggle is fast approaching It's only a matter of hours until the ancient serpent is about to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And we'll consider the context then. On the one hand, we said there is the seed of the woman. And there's also the seed of the serpent. And you know what that means. The seed of the serpent means children of the devil. And these seed of the serpent, these children of the devil, are first and foremost the Jews. And then, more specifically, the leaders of the Jews. And don't be surprised that we would speak about the Jews in this way, for Christ himself spoke of them as that way. In John 8, verse 44, he said to the leading Jews, You, you leading Jews, you are of your father the devil. He called them a brood of vipers, which means children of the devil. For a long time already, the Jewish leaders sought to, to arrest Christ and have him put to death. But the moment where this was possible had just come. The leading Jews capitalized on the disillusionment and the greed of one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot. And for the mere price of 30 pieces of silver, they had hired Judas to betray Jesus. And with the help of the Roman soldiers, as well as the temple guards, the chief priests and the Pharisees were able to capture Jesus of Nazareth. And now that they had gotten hold of him, they would not let Jesus go. And their hatred burned fiercely against Jesus. And why? Because Jesus had exposed their sin and their hypocrisy. Jesus had shown them to be whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but 
full of corruption inside. And Jesus had undermined their authority and their honor. They were losing control of the people. The people thronged after the Lord Jesus in order to hear him speak and to, to watch him perform his miracles. Jesus wielded too much power for their liking. And he threatened to take away their power and their honor. And so the leading Jews decided Jesus must die. Now the Jewish leaders themselves lacked the authority to execute people. Because Judea was an occupied nation. Judea was being ruled right now by Rome. And Rome had stripped the power of the high Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, of its power to execute criminals. And therefore, the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish council, had to bring Jesus to the representative of Rome, who was Pontius Pilate. And in Pontius Pilate, we see another seed of the serpent. He might not appear to be so from the outside. He's not filled with that same hatred for Jesus as the Jews are. But we mustn't be deceived. Jesus, Pontius Pilate, was indeed a seed of the serpent. By the time of our text, Pontius Pilate had been the governor or the procurator of Judea for at least four years. And rumors and stories about this Jesus of Nazareth must have also reached his ears. He must have heard of some of the teachings of Jesus. He must have heard about the miracles of Jesus. But Pontius Pilate took no interest at all in the religious affairs of these Jews. And he took no interest at all in Jesus. He is indifferent. And indifference, beloved, indifference towards the Lord Jesus is no better than hatred. For Jesus himself said, those who are not for me are against me. Yes, Pontius Pilate is against Jesus, just as much as the leading Jews. And don't be misled by, G by Pilate's feeble attempts to release Jesus. It becomes evident from what follows that Pontius Pilate was not really any different than the Jewish leaders inside. He is just as self-centered as they were. In verse 12, we read that Caiaphas, the leading Jew, the high priest, he threatens Pontius Pilate. He's going to instigate a, a massive Jewish uprising that would surely reach the ears of the Roman emperor, Tiberius. And when Tiberius heard about this uprising of the Jews, and when he found out that this had occurred because the Jews did not want another king besides Tiberius, oh, then Pilate would be in big trouble. Surely Pontius Pilate would lose his position and his honor, if not even his life. After all, he would be supporting this pretender to the throne, this man who claims to be the king of the Jews. And so when push comes to shove and when it comes to the crunch, then Pilate gives in to the pressure of the Jewish leaders because he wants to hold on to his own position and his own honor and his own power. He's no different than the Jewish leaders. But we're running ahead of our text. At this point, Pilate has not yet given in to that ultimatum. 
At this point in, in our text, Pontius Pilate is making these feeble attempts to release Jesus. Having scourged Jesus, he presents, the pe- he presents Jesus to the people, hoping that they will be satisfied when they see the blood running down his body because he had been scourged and because of the crown of thorns. But no, the scourging is not sufficient to satisfy the hatred of the Jews. The Jewish leaders demand that this man, who supposedly had blasphemed God, that he be executed. What did they say? That Jesus had made himself to be the Son of God? Was that why they were angry with him? Because he claimed to be the Son of God? When Pilate heard that, then he became alarmed. And to understand that alarm, you must understand that the Romans at that time believed that the gods could come down to earth in human form. The Romans believed that their emperors, their Caesars, were sons of the gods. And the Caesars were worshipped as divine beings. Could it be that this man who called himself king of the Jews and who called himself the son of God, could he be divine? Could he be a God-man like Caesar? And if he was, if he was really divine, if he was God come down to earth in human form, and if Pilate crucified him, then Pilate might incur the wrath of the God of the Jews and bring a curse upon himself. And therefore, Pontius Pilate is alarmed. He's scared. And therefore, he comes to Jesus again. And he says, where are you from? Jesus remained silent. He had already answered that question. Pilate had asked him earlier if he was a king, and Jesus said he was, but he also said his kingdom was not of this earth, not of this world. And he had just been told by the Jews that Jesus called himself the Son of God. And so the answer to Pilate's question was already obvious. Pilate knew But Pilate's question, where are you from, it displays his unbelief. And his unbelief induces Jesus to remain silent. And Pilate then was surprised at Jesus' silence. One would expect that a man in such a precarious situation as he was, that he would make every use of every opportunity to free himself. But Jesus remained silent. And so Pilate explains to Jesus, Aren't you going to talk to me? Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or the power to release you? Don't you know, he says, that your life is in my hands? Now, Jesus does not deny that that's true. Pilate, indeed, has the power to crucify Christ or to release him. But whatever Pilate decides to do with Jesus can only be done because he permits it to be so. Because heaven permits it to be so. And so ultimately Jesus says to Pilate, there is a higher power than you that is in control of my life and my death. Now you notice that Jesus doesn't use God's name in his reply. He does not say, as he could have, 
to Pilate, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from God. He didn't say that. He says, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. And by using that phrase, from above, Jesus is referring not just to God the Father, but he's referring to himself as well. Because Jesus is from above. John the Baptist had said of Christ, he who comes from above is above all. Jesus once told the Jews, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And as we just mentioned, the Jews had just said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate was just informed as well that Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Which means he comes from above. And so when Jesus spoke about Pilate receiving power from above, then he's not referring just to God, but he's referring to himself as well as the king of a heavenly kingdom. So Pilate on the one hand says, do you not know that I have power? And Jesus says in response, yes, you have power, but only because my father and because I have given you that power. Yes, even Christ gives Pontius Pilate the power that he has. And thereby, Pilate is basically saying the same thing that he said on an earlier occasion. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. He lays down his life as the atoning sacrifice for sin. He lays down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so you see here, beloved, the divine sovereignty in Christ's crucifixion. The Jewish leaders think that they are in control of the situation. They can manipulate the crowds and have them say whatever they want to say. And they can force Pilate to do whatever they want Pilate to do. They've got him. Pilate, on the other hand, thinks that he is in control. And behind both these Jewish leaders and Pontius Pilate is Satan, who is striving for control, who is striving to frustrate God's plan of redemption. But Jesus says with unmistakable clarity that he and his Father in heaven are in control of this situation. And so in the midst of what appears to be the darkest hour in the history of salvation proves to be an hour of great light. And in the midst of this time when tears are being shed by many, there is actually laughter in heaven. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Now Pontius Pilate is not in control of this part of world history or salvation history. Neither are the leaders of the Jews. Neither is the ancient serpent. But God is using the forces of evil to fulfill his plan of redemption. And that, beloved, is a marvelous comfort for the church of all ages. Because although Christ now has ascended into heaven as at the right hand of the Father, the body of Christ, the church, remains here on earth. 
And although Christ's personal sufferings are complete, his body, the church, continues to be attacked by the powers of darkness, and all the more so as the end of time draws near. And there have been some dark times since Christ ascended into heaven. Times when the powers of darkness seem to be firmly in control. Times when the New Testament church experienced horrific persecution, such as in the early Roman Empire. And I can hear some of these these Caesars, these emperors of Rome, Caligula, Domitian, Nero, shouting to the Christians in the arena as they were being threatened to be torn apart by wild animals or set alight as human torches around the periphery of the stadium. I can hear the emperors crying out to these Christian martyrs, I have the power to kill you or to let you live. Recant your belief in Jesus Christ. Acknowledge that I am God and you will live. Or you think of the persecution in the time of the Reformation. And maybe you can hear with me those bishops and those priests who cry out to those faithful believers who follow the Reformation, who were tied to the stake and who were about to be burned alive. You can hear those bishops and those priests cry out, I have the power or we have the power to crucify you. We have the power to burn you alive. But you can hear, can't you, the voice of the martyrs responding with the same kind of answer as the Lord Jesus. You could have no power over us if it were not given you from above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, to whom has been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And so through all the ages, the church has been comforted and strengthened by the knowledge of God's sovereignty, God's plan of salvation is powerfully and perfectly fulfilled. His plan may include trials and tribulations, perhaps even persecution. But from history we know that the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. And though the forces of evil try to frustrate God's plan of redemption, the church only continues to grow in faith and in numbers. And we today still have that comfort Because though we may not suffer physically at the hands of evil powers, we confess and we know that at all times we are being attacked by our three mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature. And at times we can experience evil in our life. But no power of evil can have power over us unless it is given to them by God. And whatever powers are given to these evil forces. God will use them for the fulfillment of his plan of redemption also for us. That's God's sovereignty. But someone might say, the evil men especially, if evil men, what evil men do, if that is incorporated in God's plan of redemption, if God uses evil to promote good, then doesn't that take away all the guilt of men? Doesn't that take away their culpability? And not at all. Though God is sovereign, man remains responsible. And that brings us to our second point. Man's culpability 
in Christ's crucifixion. Jesus said, you could have no power over me at all if it were not given to you from above. And so Jesus was effectively saying, we saw, that if it was in accordance with God's will and plan that he should die, then he will. And so we have here not only a man who was willing to die, but a man who could only be executed if God permitted. So logically, Pontius Pilate could say, well, I'm in a bit of a conundrum here. I'm in a bit of a a, a tight situation. On the one hand, they want me to kill him. On the other hand, he's innocent. What do I do? Well, Jesus just gave me the answer. I can do nothing unless God wants it. So now if I kill him, well, that must be the will of God. And if it's the will of God, then certainly I cannot be blamed for that because I'm just doing what God wants. But Pilate could not absolve himself of his guilt so easily. As the procurator of Judea, as the governor of Judea, Pilate had been appointed not by Caesar, but by God. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13. There is no governing authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So Pilate is appointed not by Caesar in the first place, but by God. And that means then that Pilate has to answer to God for the way that he exercises his God-given authority. And the words that King Solomon spoke to the judges of old applies just as well to Pontius Pilate. Solomon warned the judges whom he had appointed in Israel, he said to the judges, take heed to what you are doing. For you do not judge for men, but you judge for the Lord who is with you in judgment. And so those same words apply to Pilate. Take heed what you are doing, Pontius Pilate. You are judging not for men, you are judging for the Lord. And you, Pilate, then, as a servant of God, you are obliged to execute wrath on him who does evil, but you are also obliged to acquit the innocent. That's what a faithful judge must do. He must execute wrath on the guilty, but he must acquit the innocent. That means he has to allow the innocent people to go free. But Pontius Pilate is not a faithful judge. He does not judge with righteousness and equity. He condemns a man to death whom he himself had three times proclaimed to be innocent. Three times he brought Jesus out and said to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge in this man. He has done nothing. And still he condemns Jesus to death. That's a serious breach, not only of Roman law, but also of the law of God. God is a God of justice and equity. And God demands that his servants in government must exercise justice and equity. Never mind the fact that God permits Pilate to do this evil. Never mind the fact that God will make this evil work for good, for the fulfillment of his plan of redemption. Pilate is acting contrary to the law of God. He is, in fact, murdering an innocent man. And he did it according to his own will. He could have refused the demands of the Jews, and he should have, even if it had cost him his life or his position and his honor. Pilate was not helpless in this matter. He made a choice, and he made a wrong choice. 
And he was responsible for that. He was guilty before God of a grievous sin. And not just Pontius Pilate either, but also Judas who betrayed him. And the Jewish leaders who delivered him over to Pilate. And their guilt was even greater than Pilate's. Because Judas, together with these leading Jews, they had the law and the prophets. They had the word of God to guide them. Something that Pilate, a heathen, did not have. And furthermore, it was in the midst of these Jews, especially in the midst of Judas, that Jesus had taught and where he had performed his miracles that proved that he was divine, that he was the Son of God. Jesus had come first and foremost for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It was to the Jews first that he spoke his words and performed his works. Words and works that proved that he was the Messiah whom God had promised. They had seen it all. They had heard it all. And yet Judas and the leading Jews, they reject Jesus as the Messiah. They reject him as the Son of God incarnate. They who had received so much, much would be required of them. Their guilt would be the heavier. And so Pilate and the Jewish leaders and Judas Iscariot and all the people of the Jews who shouted for Christ to be crucified, all of them are guilty before God. And through the course of history, there have been so many emperors and kings and bishops and priests who have incurred deadly guilt because they have continued to persecute Christ in his body, in the church. And there are so many who have crucified Christ anew. Do you realize, beloved, that it's possible for us to incur that same guilt today? The author of the letter to the Hebrews says it's possible for us here sitting this morning. It's possible for us to crucify Christ a second time. In Hebrews 6, he's talking to the church. And the author says this, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away, if they reject Christ. In other words, it's impossible to renew them to repentance because they crucify for a gain for themselves the Son of God. You see, beloved, Christ comes to us again this morning in the pages of Holy Scripture. And he comes to us in the spirit. And we have come to know him. He is speaking to us through his word. And we read of the miracles that he performed. And we can know through the scriptures that he is indeed the, the savior, the Messiah, the son of God incarnate. But if we reject Christ after coming to the knowledge of Christ... And that sometimes happens in the church. Sometimes there are those who have been taught from their youth onward. They know Christ. They have sat in church and listened to the preaching. They've been to catechism, to Christian schools maybe. They know who Christ is. But they reject him. Sometimes it, it's just a matter of indifference. 
Sometimes it's just a matter of having no feelings for Christ at all. They don't hate him. They don't oppose him. But they don't bow down to him. They don't acknowledge him as Lord and King. They don't cling to him in faith as their Savior and seek their life in him. They are indifferent, just like Pontius Pilate. But in essence, they reject Christ. They crucify him anew. Maybe there's others who have heard of Christ, who know him and hate him with a fierce hatred. Maybe they have that kind of rejection as the Jewish leaders did, and they oppose. Maybe they persecute, even as Paul of Sarsus did for a time. It's possible for us to crucify the Son of God again. And if we did that, it would be a terrible thing because we would incur great wrath before God. We would become just as guilty as the Jewish leaders who betrayed Christ over to Pilate. We would be just as guilty of Pilate who condemned an innocent man. And so we must all ardently embrace Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And it troubles us, doesn't it? Especially when loved ones would turn away from the Lord, reject him, crucify him anew, as it were. But even then we have a comfort, beloved, because God remains sovereign. God remains in control. No one of those whom God has chosen, none of them will be lost. No one can frustrate God's plan of redemption All those whom God has chosen to eternal life, all those whom God has included in his plan of redemption, they will embrace Christ and they will be saved. That's the sovereignty again of God's grace. How God sovereignly fulfills his plan of redemption, even though the forces of evil may strive to frustrate that plan. And how comforting then that is for us, the sovereignty of God From dawn of history until today, the forces of evil have tried to destroy God's plan of redemption and to destroy God's people. But we see in our text, even in that darkest hour, so to speak, God is in control. And the powers of light conquer the powers of darkness. And God's plan of redemption is fulfilled. Amen.